Hello, I'm Daniel. This is my podcast, Sharpening the Mind. I am a meditation teacher and also a labor activist in Kansas City, Missouri. I teach classes in meditation and Buddhism at the Rime Buddhist Center, as well as a few other places. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Hello, I am sitting here with my friend Brian. His stage name is Barefoot Bran. He is a musician in Kansas City. Say hello, Brian. Hello. I'm going to read to you from Brian's website. It says, and again, his stage name is Bran, which Brian Bran, it's kind of confusing, but Bran is a folk singer, songwriter, performer, and recording artist based in and around Kansas City. Described by many as a modern-day mix of Gordon Lightfoot, John Denver, and a healthy dose of tree-hugging, Bran crafts his unique, down-to-earth folk songs that aim to tell stories that are inspiring, insightful, and oft-times humorous. So, anyway, he makes folk music and... Described by many as a mix of Gordon Lightfoot and John Denver. Are you described by many as that or by yourself? Um, no, I get I get the John Denver a lot and the Gordon Lightfoot a bit. Um, Gordon Lightfoot's one of my folk heroes. So, and John Denver's okay, but people people say my voice sounds like him a lot, um, which I take as a compliment. Um, <laughs> okay, but yeah. <clears throat> um, and so, I guess my style might be slightly similar to them. Um, I don't know. Like, so, um, Brian has been... Should I call you Brian or Brian? You can call me... Okay. Brian <laughs> has been a pagan musician for many years. Or rather, he's been a musician who goes to pagan festivals and performs... And if I understand correctly, a lot of the time what you get is free entry to the festival. Sometimes you actually get paid as well, which is really awesome. Right? Is that true? Yeah. You get paid ever? Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there was once or twice. Okay. But now you don't identify as a pagan anymore. Correct. You identify as a Buddhist. So Correct. I want to ask you, is that super weird? You do still engage with the pagan community and you do still go to some festivals and things. Is that weird? Um, usually not, but sometimes we, there are clashes of, uh, I don't know. I I wouldn't call them clashes, but moments where I definitely feel a little like I don't belong, um, in certain ways. The pagan community is amazing and I've grown very, I've grown spiritually in the pagan community over the years and it's a beautiful, beautiful community. But sometimes I just, you know, I've, I've, I've come to a point in my life where I feel more comfortable in the, in identifying as Buddhist than pagan. And there, yeah, there are sometimes discrepancies that come about. And, um, I imagine that's what you'll be getting into. (laughs) So, um, the people that know you know you're a musician, but I discovered discovered that you're a writer as well because I found a blog post from you about an experience you had where someone at Kansas City Pagan Pride Day gave you trouble for being a Buddhist and also being involved in the pagan community. And I wonder if you can speak about that. I know some people think that it's really incompatible. I know my own experience, I've gone to pagan festivals before as a guest speaker, and um, it's really like a big party sometimes. And sort of Buddhism, people want to say Buddhism's not a big party, but then I think those are both misconceptions because I think sometimes Buddhism is a party, and I think sometimes paganism's not a party, but those are definitely views that people have. Yes. So can you speak about that? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's a lot of overlap between the two, uh, communities or I don't know, ideologies, but yeah, we will, 
uh, come across um, some, like you said, the sometimes the pagan festivals can feel just like a big party. And that is true, although there are like deeply spiritual aspects to it. Um, I know my first pagan festival was not what I expected. <laughs> I was expecting a, a more spiritual, a more, I don't know, uh, I'm very, very more inclined to quieter, reflective uh, spiritual experiences. And that's not what you tend to find at pagan gatherings and events. But uh, yeah, uh, like the incident at Kansas City Pagan Pride Day, um, a, a, a friend, you know, I guess he was a little confused as to how a Buddhist could be participating in pagan events. And so he brought up the, the conundrum, the apparent conundrum that, that paganism, specifically a, a hedonism, the hedonistic aspect of paganism, which he was arguing on behalf of, could not in any way be compatible with what he thought was a life-denying aspect of Buddhism. And I found that very interesting that someone would approach that topic from a, well, paganism is hedon, a very hedonistic based thing. And this is a pagan saying that and about life denying Buddhism, um, which I think I, I would hope most of us would know is not exactly correct. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you want to talk. I feel, I feel like pagans are just hedonistic is something that people that don't like paganism say. Yeah. So that's, it's yeah, it's very unique. But I, I have I learned because I went to Heartland Pagan Festival to teach them about Buddhist meditation. I one I expected to learn a, something about paganism, and I did not learn anything. And then two, uh, really, in talking to the people and meeting them and engaging with them, like a lot of people that go to those things aren't don't identify as pagan and they just like pagan culture. You know, they just like the free love and the fun and the life affirming. And that's okay. That's not good or bad. And I, um, I've sort of found that in the Buddhist community as well. There's a few people that go to Buddhist events that don't identify as Buddhist. And I think that's okay, but I think it's way more true in the pagan community of people just want to celebrate pagan culture. So they just go. Oh yeah. I, I definitely, I would definitely agree with that. Um, and as you said, there's some crossover, like there's people in the Buddhist community that's not Buddhist. And I found a surprising amount of pagans in the Buddhist community. And I think that might be because Buddhism offers um, the more reflective contemplative side, spiritual dimension that, most that I think some pagan gatherings lack. Um, and maybe it is because there are non-pagans attracted to these pagan events for that life affirming, you know, out there vibe. Um, but I think, I think it would be a, 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 what's the word? A misconception to think that paganism is completely hedonistic in its ways like there is definitely the aspect of that in some practices and paths but in the same way buddhism is not life denying um which i can see why they might come to that assumption that conclusion but yeah i sort of okay um, to shift gears and stop talking about paganism, I think. Um, I sort of don't want to talk about the Four Noble Truths anymore because I think that people get have the impression that, oh, Buddhism's really negative because they say life is suffering. And uh, we could go to great lengths to talk about the translation of that word dukkha because it's not it's been translated as suffering, but I think that's probably not for the best because... 
people do think Buddhism is very negative. Some people even think it's just nihilistic, just I hate the world. And um, that, in my experience, Buddhists are often very positive people. So it's not, it's not very negative. But so a lot of the time, if I talk about the Four Noble Truths with someone, I feel like I have to apologize for the Four Noble Truths or I have to bend over backwards to figure out how to talk about this and to get rid of the notion that it's very negative because it's not very negative. The whole point is that life is a struggle or life is uncomfortable and we can make it better for ourselves. That's the whole point. So really it's, it's more positive than most worldviews and we fall into a trap when we say life is suffering. It's like people stop listening (laughs) I, I totally agree. I think there needs there almost needs to be a, a shift, a, a re-translation of dukkha and how we describe that in English. Because um, suffering is very dramatic. And, uh, yeah, I think it's like, you know, I think the, the point of, you know, life is suffering is like, guys, life sucks. We all know that. Like... And now, you know, let's, you know, let's, let's face, let's face that fact in a, in a compassionate, gentle way. So the point is that we're being honest with ourselves about our situation. That's sort of what we're doing in Buddhism. So we're getting older and things we like are going away eventually. And ultimately we're all going to die. And that may seem very negative, but it's also, it's very, it's very honest. We're not going to pretend like something else is happening. This is what's happening. And it's just what we do with our time rather than pretending this is not happening. So uh, it's negative only in the sense that being real is negative. Sometimes, sometimes we have to face uncomfortable truths in life. So it's sort of like if when you're a kid and your dog dies, if your parents either, they're either going to tell you your dog died or they're going to tell you your dog went away to a farm to live a wonderful life, right? We want to face that reality. We don't want to lie to ourselves. We want to admit our dog didn't go to a farm, right? So in that sense, I understand why it seems can seem negative to people very easily, but Whereas other paths may not seem as negative because, and I don't want to tear anybody down, but I do want to say other paths might not be as directly focused on facing real life as it really is and being honest with ourselves about what's happening and what the situation is we're in and maybe how we can make better decisions and have a better time facing the situation that we're in. Yeah. I, I really like your, your use of the word honesty, like being honest with ourselves. Um, and it, yeah, I think it might seem negative, but I think that maybe in part because of like the, uh, I, I, or I heard the, the term the other day, toxic positivity. And I thought that's, that's a, that's really good like that we can recognize that there's a, a, almost a toxic positivity in our you know overuse of think positively and and it starts it starts to be turning a blind eye to what's really happening or you know this stuff is really happening to us guys like you know we're really actually going to die we're really actually going to be uncomfortable and to not to not notice that is a disservice to our well-being. We have a tremendous capacity to lie to ourselves in all sorts of ways. And it usually doesn't serve us very well. So tell me, do you have a favorite Buddhist story? 
I think so. Um, okay. I would like to hear it. Yeah. So I, I thought about this for a while and I, I realized my favorite stories are, are not like the big epic flashy stories. Um, and in fact, the, the two that popped out to me, one's not even really a Buddhist story so much as like a contemporary anecdote. And, but the more traditional one that always comes to mind is the, uh, I think it's the Sona Sutta, which uh, the, the, the monk approaches the Buddha and um, with this, this question of if he's, if he's practicing right and like he's practicing really hard his feet are bloodied from walking meditation is you know he's just exerting a lot of effort and the buddha knowing this this monk was a uh, a musician before becoming a monk and maybe that's why i like the story because <laughs> it involves <laughs> musical instruments uh you know uses the analogy of the of the of the musical instrument the string being just right you know he asks the monk if what would happen if you tighten the string too much, you know? And, you know, obviously it'll snap. If the string's too loose, it won't play the right note. It just has, it has to be just right. And I'm, I try to think why this story captivates me so much. And I think most of the, the stories, the Buddhist stories that I really like have something to do with like something I find difficult in practice, which you know, this touches on right effort and, you know, which still mystifies me. Um, it's such a, an important aspect, but it's also like really, really difficult. And so like, what, what is the, the, you know, the, 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 the middle way of, you know, the Goldilocks zone of practice, <laughs> not too hot, not too cold. Um, and it gives me just a lot of food for thought. Uh, what, what do you, what's your take on Okay. That? So, right. That is a really good description of the middle way. So I like that, that story too. It's, it's, we don't want to be so, we don't want to indulge so much that all we're doing is indulging all the time, but we also don't want to deny ourselves so much that we're, Honestly, I think if we deny ourselves too much, then we're thinking about how we're denying ourselves. So it's like in the story of the Buddha's life, right? He spent a period just not eating or just eating like a piece of rice a day or something. That's what they say anyway. And he shriveled up and got really thin and he didn't feel like that was going anywhere. And I, I, I tend to think that what he was thinking about all the time was food, but maybe not. But thinking about food all the time, well, that's not helpful, right? So... I tend to think that way. So we want to be sort of in the middle between just giving in to all our temptations all the time and just denying ourselves all the time. Because if we just deny ourselves all the time, well, that does seem like kind of a negative path. And I don't want that. So that's what I think of when I think of the middle way. And I think that, especially for a musician, that description of tightening the strings, that probably makes a lot of sense to you. Um, I don't know how stringed instruments work but that makes sense to me too that like if you tighten it too much it's gonna break right is that how that works yeah yeah and if you make it too loose it's gonna just kind of wobble it's, so it just sounds horrible <laughs> and unplayable so um that makes sense to me we want it to be exactly exactly right so we want to guide our lives into that middle into that correct amount of tightening of our strings so that we are able to focus on the spiritual path, but also our needs are met. And we're not thinking about how our needs aren't being met. Because if we're like the Buddha and we starve ourselves, then we're just thinking about cake all the time. And that's not that's not going to help us really, because we're thinking about cake. We're not thinking about spiritual awakening at all. Yeah, we need we need to sustain ourselves in order to, you know, practice, you know, the best we can. And and this, this kind of ties back to our earlier discussion on, you know, hedonism versus life denying. And I think this, you know, it really highlights how Buddhism is not life denying, but right. Um, yeah, it's, and there's like, 
when when you get the string right, you tune it right, there's this almost like this this ease. And when you find that that rightness, there's an ease. You know, there could be an ease to the practice. It's not you're not clenching and trying really hard to get enlightened. Right. You know, you're not going, you know, super super saiyan or whatever. I'm not a Dragon Ball fan, but uh, you know, <laughs> that's the the image that comes to mind when like they're really exerting effort and they're glowing and everything. And but it's not. Yeah, it's not given to the cake all the time. <laughs> right. Um, so I want to shift gears now and ask, talk to you about music because I know that you are a musician and you have a twin brother who is a musician. And if I understand your life story correctly, you and your brother both are completely self-taught. Is Uh, that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I think in the, the modern age of technology, it's super easy to teach yourself this stuff now. If, if you exert, you know, the right effort in the learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, we probably are doing things wrong, but, <laughs> but that's, that comes with the territory. Um, yeah. It's just a matter of picking up an instrument and thinking like, how do I play this? Mm-hmm. And YouTube, Google books, etc. So I wanted to mention that um, one of my favorite musicians, Eric Clapton, uh, I read his autobiography and he said he doesn't have a clue how to read music because he doesn't care about learning how to read music. So I wanted to ask you, do you know how to read music? No. Okay. <laughs> I lo- yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's a, uh, a theme I see in a lot of uh, folk musicians and whatnot is yeah. Can't read a lick of, of music. Um, and which I always appreciate when a musician puts out a songbook and it, you know, they might have sheet music, so it's like, oh, cool, you know, gibberish. And then, but then they have the, the chords and whatnot, the, which is what I know. I know how to play a G chord or an A chord, you know, like, so give me the letters, not the symbols. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's very interesting to me because I think, like, there's this perception that the right way to learn how to play music is to learn how to read music and learn how to have the little book and you look at the notes or whatever, the weird symbols and you just know what they are. And, and I think plenty of musicians do the opposite of that. And they do what you did, which is just, I am experimenting and I know what this sounds like and I know what this sounds like and I'm going to build around that and I'm going to make a song. And you also, Can you hear a song and play it? Um, not. It's not that easy. <laughs> um, sometimes you know I'll be able to recognize a you know a chord progression or something, um, and then mess around and try to find like the right key and everything. And but that's that's where Google comes into play. You know, <laughs> it's like how to play this song. And, but you know the 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 technique on how to play guitar oh. you know is what you have to teach yourself okay um, so you can see a video okay you can like a song and see a video of someone playing the specific strings they're playing and then you know how to play the song is that how you do it yeah that's that's okay. one way to do it if there's a good video and you can see their hands it's like okay i know i can generally see they're playing some sort of like g chord or something and hmm. And it's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to try that and see what sounds right. And, um, yeah, sometimes it's just, a, it is a matter of experimentation. That sort of, that makes me wonder, like, Eric Clapton didn't have Google. Jimi Hendrix didn't have Google, but they, they also, they did the same thing as you. That's sort of weird to think about. Um, and just knowing a tiny bit, like, I've never taken, like, a music theory class or anything, but just knowing just the bare minimum of music theory could help a lot knowing like the circle of fifths and stuff, which is something I'm very not knowledgeable in and knowing how notes, you know, interact with each other. It's, it could be really helpful, but that's something you can, Mm -hmm. I think you can teach yourself to a limit. And it, it's not to say that knowing how to read music is a disadvantage or anything or, 
Um, if anything, not knowing how to read music could be a disadvantage, <laughs> but I don't think it's, I, it, it, it's not bad. Um, you know, if you can read music, you probably know a lot more of the, you know, the quote unquote science behind the, the sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and with self being self-taught, it's just do what sounds right. You know, um, if it sounds right, cool, keep it. If it sounds wrong, you know, you made a mistake, you learn. I think self-taught is really about making more mistakes <laughs> and weeding them out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it really boggles my mind. And I think it boggles, I think a lot of people, if they find out you do this all yourself and nobody taught you anything, it really is strange to me that you've figured out in your songs sometimes when to put in yourself. You are the backup for yourself sometimes. So you have your voice <laughs> and then the backup, which is also you singing sort of differently, a little bit quieter in the background. And yeah. like, I think how, how I, and I know, I guess I don't have an artist mind because I think, how did you figure out that was needed and then figure out how to do that and then do it? I can't even imagine so that, all of that. That specifically, like, <laughs> like harmonizing with myself, like adding myself as background, like that is probably the most experimental part of my, of making music for me is knowing like, how should I, you know, when should I harmonize? How should I harmonize? Like, I don't know like what note I'm singing. Um, I just know to sing that because it sounds right with the guitar. So it's a a matter of sitting down and making noises (laughs) and seeing what sounds right. You know, and a lot of times it's like, I have probably more failed songs than I do songs I would consider semi-successful and, you know, not, and, and good enough to share with other people or maybe not as bad as other things to share with people. I don't know. I, I can relate to that. I have a lot more writings I've, I've thrown away than writings I've shared with the world. So I can, I can, I can sort of understand that. Yeah. And I mean, I remember when my, my brother, he learned to play guitar and everything a few years before I did. And just watching, watching him play mystified me, uh, to no end. And it was actually a, a, a story he told me about learning to play guitar that really inspired me to keep learning. Um, when he was very new, he was teaching himself chords and, you know, the, the strings really hurt your fingers and like you could potentially bleed and, um, and it's just weird, you know, you're contorting your hand and trying to learn like five dimensions at once. And he, he told me there was a point where he stopped and thought I could never learn this. Like, this is way too much. Um, I might as well give up like cool, cool. I'm, that was fun, but I'm going to stop. And then, there was a point where he said, okay, I could either put the guitar down forever and never learn guitar, or I could push myself and continue this. Even though it might hurt, even though it's frustrating, I could continue and then maybe potentially be able to play guitar one day. And I thought that was so inspiring, you know, the determination, the, that, you know, the crossroads of choice. Oh. So I think that's true of many things we might try to learn to do. For example, meditation practice. We could just be like, this is hard. Fuck this. I'm never going to get anywhere. And we could just quit. Or we could say, well, we're just going to keep trying and see what happens. Because it is hard, right? I really don't want to meditate. I really want to watch Netflix, right? So um, that maybe that's sort of similar to teaching yourself how to play guitar. If you just say, this is really hard and there's lots of reasons not to do it, but you just say, well, I really want to do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and for me personally, like music is a spiritual practice. 
in some aspects. Um, so yeah, I think that that uh, that same determination you can apply to meditation, and um, it's very applicable. It's very and it's very similar in regards to. It's not always going to be fun or pleasant, but uh, it's rewarding. I think in the end, hopefully. Maybe that also applies to teaching yourself how to do a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to talk to you now also about dreams. And I wanted for a few reasons. And first is because I, um, that's sort of one of the ways I like to describe the Buddhist path is I like to say we're, we're walking through a daydream. And that's why we are not attentive to the things we want to pay attention to. And we get lost very easily and we go down strange trains of thought and we don't see the world as it really is. And that's really, to me, a very significant way to look at it is we don't see the world as it really is. We see, we bring all our baggage and our neuroses into how we see the world. So sometimes life is like walking through a daydream. And I sort of think of the Buddhist path as trying to see through that, or at least, at least to know when it's happening, when we're not Mm. seeing the world clearly, which is a lot of the time, right? We bring a lot of baggage to everything. And so I wanted to see if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, I think, I think, uh, yeah, I think the, the, the metaphor of, I guess you could call it a metaphor of, you know, the Buddhist path is like, you know, it's like waking up from a dream, you know, uh, maybe not wake. I think waking up might be not, it just misses the mark a little. Although, you know, like Buddha is the awakened one, you know, you're waking up. Um, but dreams always fascinate me, uh, especially when I, when I learned and experienced uh, lucid dreaming which I think is like perfect for, you know, the, the idea of, of walking a Buddhist path because you're in the midst of the dream. And sometimes there's just, for me, there's like triggers in the dream that makes me realize, wait a minute, this is a dream. I'm experiencing a dream right now. And like, you just access this more aware state of, being in the dream and now nothing matters like a monster is chasing you in a dream and all of a sudden wait a minute this is a dream it doesn't matter anymore like that storyline stops and now you can look around and see the dream for what it really is which is a dream and it's actually very beautiful most of the time too um do you experience that a lot not as often as I want to, <laughs> but uh, there I will occasionally, um, maybe once, like on average once, like every three months or something, I will uh, have a lucid dream. And <clears throat> I remember a few years ago, I had this period of about a month or a month and a half where I had a lucid dream almost every week. And it was, it was just mind blowing, you know, to be able to uh, to experience that. And I don't know if it's like you're actually like working through stuff mentally and emotionally, but like there's always moments. Uh, I, I, I've noticed a tendency through lucid dreams where, uh, like, I don't know if it's just like consciousness, like slips through the stress. Cause it's, it's always in a stressful situation. Like being chased by people with axes or I'm driving in an unknown part of town that, and I stop and I think, why would this be happening exactly? (laughs) Like I would never put myself in this situation. And like the experience of stress wakes me up. It's like, wait a minute, why, why is this happening? And I start looking and realize this isn't real in the conventional sense. Um, (laughs) I know you made a whole album about how weird your dreams are <laughs> because you have vi- very vivid dreams and you remember them in detail also. I can tell you that 
pretty often I'll wake up and think that was a really weird dream. But then like three minutes later, I'm like, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember anything about that dream, except that I had the thought that was a weird dream. Yeah. Um, and that happens a lot too, for me, um, waking up and thinking, wow, that's, that was bizarre. <laughs> I'm so going to remember that. And then later I don't. <laughs> um, and there are like, there are little practices I will do to help remember to recall dreams. Um, one is, like the most important and the one that I don't do <laughs> is <laughs> to write your dreams down as soon as you wake up. As soon as you wake up when it's still fresh, you write. And more often than not, you will notice, you will realize as you're writing, the dream will come back to you like in pieces as you, as it's unfolding on paper. And I also do this shortcut where I wake up from a dream in the middle of the night. I'm still like half asleep and I will give myself a keyword to remember and later that day, I will, I'll think, oh, I had this dream, but I can't remember what, oh yeah, the keyword. But sometimes it backfires and it's like, keyword was lemons. Like what, what did that have to do with anything? I can't remember anything. Like what in the world? Um, but, but yeah, it's, it, it's a progress. It, it's something you, I think you had to like keep up on, um, you know, continue, continuously do this because it'll reinforce itself remembering your dreams, recalling your dreams. Um, the more, the more often you, you write them down or something, the more often you will remember them without having to write them down too. Um, but I mean, as far as the vividness and the, the weird narratives, I can't explain that. I can't explain that. Uh, but they're so fun too. And um, I've also noticed a meditation practice helps immensely. Um, if you, if you start implementing mindfulness, like, um, mindfulness breaks just for a, a few seconds throughout the day too, even it acts as a, uh, as what in lucid dream terms is a reality check. Um, and if you've ever seen the movie inception, they have the totems that they use to like check to see if it's a dream or not. And, uh, you know, you could, I've, I've had friends, uh, tell me they use the anatomy of their hand to, to, to dream check, to reality check. If, it, if they look at their hand and it's weird, obviously <laughs> it's not real. Um, light switches usually don't work in dreams. Sometimes they do. And that will like trick you into thinking you're, you're still awake. Um, but it it has like a mindfulness aspect, you know, just stop to stop and ask, am I dreaming? Like, okay, where am I right now? Um, and sometimes it does backfire. So I've never had that sort of experience myself. But what I've heard is if you just try to read something, because people say that reading, like the part of the brain that dreams is not the same that makes sense of words and letters. And I, I don't know if there's truth to that, but yeah. what I've heard is if you try to read something, you're not going to be able to read and then you'll realize you're in a dream. But oh I, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I've not had any of those sorts of experiences myself. Like I said, I hardly ever remember anything I dreamed at all. Although yeah. sometimes I'll wake up and I'll think that was a really weird dream. And then within a few minutes, it's just, it's gone. Well, I think there's like this, like the reality checks are really useful and everything, but it's, it really is about the intention of why you're doing it. So reading, like if you have the intention of reading and even if it's just like a moment, like, uh, I don't know if it's, you read to see if the text is, you know, stable or something. Um, and sometimes like you don't have to always implement that intentionality in, in doing so. Like if, Sometimes you will read something in a dream and be like, wow, that a written word does not do that. And so you will trigger yourself into, you know, becoming lucid. And, but, um, but yes, it's, I think it's, uh, definitely more important to intend to, you know, reality check than it is to just, you know, because there are times in dreams where I go to use my phone, I'm reading something and I'm just still flowing on in the story that my dream's telling me. And 
Uh, I can use my phone. Most of the time it doesn't work. My phone like turns off or something happens and dream me will think, oh wow, my phone's broken. But sometimes it's like, oh yeah, phones don't do this. And um, yeah, if there's, there's, there's this great movie um, called Waking Life. And it's this uh, strangely animated, uh, very like stream of consciousness movie of this guy, like just going around talking like philosophy and a lot on dreams and lucid dreams. And there's this great scene I love in it where he, they're talking about reality checks and the guy uses the light switch analogy. And he's like, yeah, if, if you go and switch on a light and it doesn't turn on, there might be a chance you're in a dream. Like, and so after the conversation, the main character gets up. Okay. Thank thank you. That's, that's wild. And he's walking away and he stops at the light switch and he just kind of smirks to himself and tries the light switch and the light doesn't turn on. And then like he gets this look on his face and he starts floating up and everything's just like (laughs) falling apart. And I love that imagery. Um, It works. I think, I think it works in more than one aspect, not just to dreams, but also maybe a Buddhist practice of, realizing you're in the dream and things fall, you know, Hmm. the narrative that you've constructed falls apart. That's cool. Yeah. It's called waking, waking waking life, life. waking life. Yeah. Okay. Where's it available? Um, I think it's on streaming services. Um, okay. I'm not sure if it's on Netflix. I think it might be on Amazon or Hulu or something. Okay. But the world is all streaming services these days. Yeah. So, so now I want to ask you about your backstory. Okay. And I want to ask you of two things. So I want to ask you first, was music a big thing when you were a kid in your household? Mm-hmm. And then I want to ask you if spirituality was a big thing in your household. Because I know this about you and your twin brother is you both grew up to be musicians Guitar guitar player. Is he a guitar player as well? Yeah, guitar player. Yeah, so both guitar players and singers. And while you grew up to be a pagan and then become a Buddhist, he grew up to be an I want to say aggressive Christian. And if you want to define that another way, you can. But so I just I want to know if spirituality and music were big things in your house when you were kids. Yeah. Um I think yes on both parts. Um music, I mean, like my my oldest sister teaches music. My other older sister was in theater. And so it was a very musical household. And my brother and I um, feed off of each other's energies. So if, if, you know, if we had various little musical instruments growing up and we always like made songs and played songs and, you know, it was always music happening um, we would always have the radio on and uh, in middle school we were in band for a year or two before we quit but <laughs> um, yeah music was a big I think a big part of our upbringing and spirituality as well uh, you know growing up it was a it was a very non-denominational Protestant Christian upbringing but I think we were fortunate in that like I, maybe I would, didn't just, I wasn't paying attention enough, but I didn't get like a lot of dogma pushed on me. There was a, uh, I, I remember, um, you know, you know, the idea of Jesus loving everyone. And I would think that's something I would, you know, I have to live up to. Like I need to love everyone. And, that wasn't very important to me, even like in elementary school, uh, reflecting on that and, um, and growing up and just experiencing, um, I don't know, like I, I also read a lot. So I think that really influenced my shift in spiritual thinking at some point. And, um, I mean, in middle school, I got, I, I got really interested in like, the paranormal and like, you know, esoteric weird stuff like UFOs, like, Whoa, no one's talked about this before. Like I need to know. And that really, that really began my shifting. I think, um, 
I was I was also like really, really, really obsessed with Lord of the Rings. So that like really gave me this like mythical nature, you know, centric, you know, ideations where, oh, trees, I'm going to go talk to trees. And um, but, you know, I started, you know, having these, you know, questions like, why hasn't anyone ever addressed like other life like on other planets? Like this is like. The Bible didn't say anything about that. And I mean, now that's not a big deal for me, um, but, but but that also led me into the realm of like astral projection and lucid dreams and just like these dimensions of life I've never encountered before and thought this is so cool. And I think that's where I got introduced to meditation too, is, is you know, oh, you could use meditation to induce these states of, you know, astral projection and whatnot and so for a while and i think it was in high school i was like really adamant about that those things lucid dreaming and astral projection so i did have a meditation practice um however loosely and weird it was but um and then in in high school we in in our english class we learned about the the christian transcendentalists um Thoreau, uh, you know, all those, all those fine people. And that idea, their ideas of finding God in nature, like really hit home with me and, and my brother. Um, at the time we were, we were just blown away. Like there are people with the same ideas, like let's go talk to trees. Let's go hang out in nature. You know, like we could do this. Um, and it was never a question to me of, not being Christian because there was this very like this nuanced spiritual aspect growing up, even though I wasn't like gung ho about it, but spirituality was always so important to me, you know, as a personal matter, I guess. And so, wow, Henry David Thoreau says this, like, that's so cool. Um, I didn't know there were these people like this. And, then around the same time, I started hearing these whispers about paganism and this other way of, this reverent way of living in the world around you. And I thought, that is so, so cool. I so highly respect that way of life. Although huh, that's impossible for me because I'm Christian, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that, that was my thought for a very long time until... Um, this, this one conversation I had with a coworker where um, somehow I ended up saying, they, they, they said, oh, well, you're a Christian. You don't like this or something. And I think that was the first utterance I've ever had where I said, well, wait, I'm not Christian. And then like that opened the floodgates. Like, wait a minute. I could like be true to who I really am, like what I believe. And so I just went out and started reading as much as I could about other things, other beliefs and other systems of practice. And, and I don't know, I think, I think those experiences too helped me like, because I have a, this, I have, a, I'm really big on like interfaith stuff, uh, interfaith dialogue. I respect all world religions. I think they're all beautiful and unique in their own way that, and they're very useful too. Um, so I don't want to, I don't want people to think I hate Christianity or something. Um, but, uh, but also at the same time, when I started getting into paganism, my, my brother started his own spiritual path and, uh, which led to, I think, I, I hope I'm not doing a disservice in, you know, a word salad, but it's like, it's, like an independent Baptist, uh, very focused on dispensationalism and biblical literalism, um, which, you know, you don't think would be able to, you know, vibe with like my pagan ideologies at the time, which they didn't, but, uh, so that, you know, that, that was, an interesting divergence because we were twins mm -hmm. up through life, like growing up side by side, almost exactly the same in every aspect. 
and then boop, fork in the road, and, um, yeah, and through my explorations, I stumbled on Buddhism and discovered how wonderfully coherent it was to me, and before, before coming to Buddhism, I was, and I still am a member of a, a druid order, and lovely, like really, really lovely people, like some of the greatest people I've met. Uh, and they're, they, they are structured in a way, but it wasn't quite right for me. Um, their approaches to things are beautiful, but just didn't work for me. Um, and there's still like a lack of, I don't know what aspect it is that I want structure for, but like I found it in Buddhism apparently. Um, yeah. Okay, so um, I had my friend Daniel Simes on the podcast, and he spent a lot of time in the in the various pagan communities in Kansas City, of which there are many. Um, I think there are more pagan communities than there are Buddhist ones, but I'm not certain about that. Mm. But he said his favorite thing about paganism was, if you need help, your community will be there to be helpful to you. And so I want to ask you, what your favorite part about being in the pagan community is slash was. Yeah. Um, like especially specifically in the Druid community, cause I never got into like the wider pagan community except for like the events and stuff that I would play at, but the Druid community, it's, it's so, and maybe it's because of how the order is structured that it's so loose and open that you can come however you are and you just, show up and you're immediately family. And it's such a strange feeling. Like, and like, I never got that from Buddhism. Like it took me a few years before I even talked to anyone at like the Buddhist center. But with Druids, it's like you show up and they're like, Hey, I saw your, your, you know, profile picture on Facebook. You're my new best friend. Like it was, it's such a strange and wonderful feeling. Um, there's Christian Druids, Buddhist Druids, um, Atheist Druids, Polytheist Druids, like any kind of Druids. And it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter what you believe. It's just, hey, we're going to hang out under some trees and, you know, geek out. And I've sort of noticed that in Buddhism. That seems to be an area where Buddhist communities generally have a little bit of trouble mm. is making people feel welcome, making people feel like they belong, strengthening the community, which, and maybe that's okay for a lot of people. Their favorite thing about Buddhism, I think is just the teachings rather than the people or the community or community events. Mm. Um, but at times maybe it can feel sort of lonely as well, because I think that that's where Buddhism doesn't do as well as other religions. It's just, making people feel like they belong and yeah. making people feel welcome and, and appreciated and liked. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's, uh, that, that's very true. Um, I know going into, you know, a Buddhist community that I've never been a part of, like there's a feeling of, well, I don't belong here. Like I'm not, I don't know enough or I haven't, practiced enough to be part of this, this group of people. Um, and so that it can be intimidating. And I know Buddhists, Buddhism attracts a lot of introverts. So that, you know, multiplies the, the, the being a part of a group factor, the awkwardness of it, I guess. I don't know. Um, and, you know, versus pagan communities, I noticed attract a lot, a lot of extroverts and people are very out and free about who they are and they want everyone, like they don't want everyone to know, but they're not afraid to let people know. Mm -hmm. In Buddhism, it's like, you're sitting next to me and this is weird. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's Yeah. And I want to, I want to make very clear. I think that's 
an aspect of Western Buddhism, and that's probably not present in Eastern Buddhism because Eastern Buddhism is like it's more like other religions here where you're going to go to the temple your parents went to and all the people you know are there. But Western Buddhism is different because an overwhelming majority of the people there were not raised Buddhist, right? So that means an overwhelming majority of the people there have broken away from how they were raised, whether that was Christian or casual Christian or not religious at all, whatever that was. All of us in the Buddhist community have just broken away from the way we were raised because we were interested in something else. And that is a fundamental thing to think about that sort of separates us from most religions. Although paganism probably has an aspect of that, too. I don't think most pagans had pagan parents, but... Yeah. Yeah, it's... um, And, I mean, I... I feel at home in the Buddhist community that I'm part of. And, and it's, it's, it's interesting because like at, at the same time, sometimes it feels like, well, you're not following the the same tradition as other people. So you still feel like you're not included, but at the same time, it's like, we don't really care. Um, like, okay, you're practicing the Dharma too. So like, you're our, you're you know our brother or sister in this too and i don't know it's a strange mix of being welcomed like unconditionally and but also not being part of that specific culture of tradition or something i don't know so because uh, you can go to a tibetan buddhist center and not believe in magic and spirits, but, um, nobody cares. Nobody cares. And I'm trying to imagine like going to a Mormon temple and not believing in the revelations of Joseph Smith, right? That'd be really weird. But if you go to a Tibetan temple and you don't believe in, if you go to a Tibetan temple and you don't believe that the 14th Dalai Lama is the reincarnation of the 13th Dalai Lama, Nobody cares, and you're probably not going to talk about it. And if you do, nobody's going to be mad at you. People don't, they'll probably think it's sort of weird you're bringing it up, but um, nobody cares. And I don't know, I'm trying to think of how that could be compared to other religions, and I can't. Yeah. I can't, except for paganism, if you say, you know, I believe in Thor, and well, I don't believe in Thor, I believe in Zeus. Like, nobody cares that you believe in, well... Maybe they do, but you can <laughs> practice together just fine. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, like in my experience of uh, taking some Buddhist classes and afterwards there will be discussions and other people will be talking about like, oh, such and such empowerment that they received and and just like those types of things. And that's not at all what I'm interested in Buddhist practice. So I think, oh, wow, like my practice is so much different than theirs. So, like, I, I will feel a little alienated in that aspect, but at the same time, it's like, we don't care. Like, at the end of the day, it's all suffering. <laughs> like, yeah. When I think to a certain extent, because we're Buddhist and because there are so few Buddhists in the United States, also, we've got to take those connections when we can. Yeah. So, so we've got to make friends when we can and build bridges when we can, even if maybe there may, there may be huge aspects of the teachings that we don't think should be focused on that are. And that's just okay because we're Buddhists and being Buddhist, being Buddhist is lonely. Being Buddhist in America is lonely. And yeah, that's about all I have to say about that. I guess I think, yeah. I think at the end of the day, it's about the community is more about having people around you that uplifts your own practice, regardless of what you're practicing and regardless of what they're practicing. It's, it's more about that and less about practicing what everyone else is practicing, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think also 
Like if you suddenly discover your practice is not being uplifted, you need to think about, well, why, what is it that's not working here? That too. But yeah, I've, I've had a lot of experience where I've gone to guided meditation events where they tell you to visualize something. And that is a practice that does not speak to me. So when people tell me to visualize something, I'm not doing it. Yeah, I'm not doing it. And I don't think I'm the only one. I think people No, you're in good company. I, think, um, I mean, like the Druid order I came from was heavy on visualization, like these pathworking meditations where it's a journey through of woods and you encounter such and such and they give you a gift. What is it? It's like, it's going to be what I physically like mentally want right now. So it's going to be something cool. Like, <laughs> and I, I have a hard time like separating myself from what I want and what I need, I guess, which like, I guess, I don't know if some people can just, you know, mentally cut that, sever that connection and let the guided meditation take you where it will instead of taking it where you want it to. Um, but yeah, visualization meditation never sat, never worked for me. Um, it's like, I already think too much. <laughs> like I don't need to think more. Uh, but people sure seem to like it. And, yeah, it and, works for some And that's people. cool, but I don't I don't get it. And like like what I said earlier about like uh even if you don't practice the same as someone else in your community, it could still help you, you know, it could still uplift your practice and I like I think that transcends religious labels too. I find a lot of um a lot of inspiration in uh, traditions that are focused more around, you know, contemplative, like silence. And, uh, I think the term is apophatic. It's, it's like, it's about the experiencing the silence of, you know, kind of what you can't explain in words. I don't know. Um, like I've been endlessly fascinated with Quakerism over the last few years because of that aspect of, of because they meditate. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, pretty much. They they sit in silence and listen, and that to me is like, you guys are a Western Buddhist. <laughs> like, like it's I've heard it described as well. If you know if if Buddhism came from a, a Western Christian, uh tradition quakerism would be it mm -hmm. and i mean i know that's such a superficial you know explanation but yeah i find a lot of you know inspiration in that and in an, and in other paths i mean and i think that comes with like my fascination with like interfaith dialogue but these the ideas and practices can transcend the 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 constructed borders between religions um, and not to say there's like a universalist, you know, theology that can be applied to every religion, but there's a lot of overlap and we can understand each other if we get out of our own heads a little, I think. Yeah, I think um, a significant role of community that we don't really talk about is I think it's good for me to be around other people who want to be mindful and want to improve themselves and live their best life. And whatever route they're doing to learn how to be mindful and live their best life is good and is a good influence on me rather than if I am only spending time with people who want to be mindless and want to consume all the time and aren't trying to live their best life. I think, um, that's a role of community is just to direct you to spend time with people that have some of the same self-development goals hmm. that you do. Some of the same self-development goals that you yeah. do. I, this reminds me of a, uh, simultaneously of a dream I had and also a song I wrote. So it's kind of like a culmination of everything we've been talking about. But, um, I had this dream 
that I was in like a, in a world religions class and we had to pick out a verse of sacred text and create a piece of art uh, based off of it. And in the dream, I found this, this verse from a Buddhist poem, which isn't an, an actual Buddhist poem. It, it just came, it, it was just a dream poem, you know, but the, the verse was, how can I be angry at you when you set down your worn out shoes next to mine? And it just kind of blew my mind, the, the meaning behind it. Um, I woke up and immediately wrote a song about it. And, and it, it is aiming at this exact, this exact idea of, you know, we all walk different paths. Um, and every road's going to be different, but it's still on the same ground, you know. And at the end of the day, we can, we're all walking the rugged the rugged paths, our shoes are going to be beat up no matter what kind of shoes they are. And at the end of the day, we all just have sore feet in the shoes, you know, and it doesn't matter if you're wearing sneakers or hiking boots or anything, you know, it doesn't matter if you're Buddhist or Christian or pagan. We're just trying our best to, to understand this human condition. And And you can't fault each other for that. And that makes us a, a, a community that, sure, we're wearing different things, but we are, we are all, and I hesitate to use the word, we are all suffering this, this you know, reality together. We're, we're in it together. Whether we like it or not. Yeah, we're in it together. All right. So um, I think we're going to end there. So um, I want to tell everyone to go to Brian's website. It's barefootbrand.com. It's exactly how it sounds is how it's spelled. So I think you should be able to find it. And um, he's got a new album that's all instrumental that he recorded with his twin brother. So that's pretty awesome. And um, anything else you want to tell the listeners before we go? I don't think so. All right. This has been great. Thank uh, you for having me on. It's, yeah. it's an honor. Thank you for coming. Thanks for listening, everyone. Goodbye. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.